0: Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. Saul Marquez is here, and today I have the privilege to host Dr. David Hanscom. He is an orthopedic spine surgeon whose practice focused on patients with failed back surgeries. He quit his practice in Seattle, Washington, to present his insights into solving chronic pain, which evolved from his own battle with it. The second edition of his book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, is just a great read. His website, backincontrol.com, presents an action plan on how to get rid of chronic pain, how to cure it. His new book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with a Surgeon's Advice, was released this fall, 2019. It is intended for healthcare providers and patients alike to make good decisions about undergoing spinal surgery we're going to be diving into healthcare costs, the use of medicine, the overuse of medicine and chronic pain. And uh, Dr. Hanscom is is, uh, going to give us his perspective on it. So just such a privilege to have you here, David. Thanks so much for, for joining us.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on your show.
0: So before we dive in to what you guys do at Back in Control, Dr. Hanscom, I want to better understand what inspires your work in healthcare. Can you share with us a little bit about that?
1: Well, I'm a little bit of a different perspective in that I spent two years training in internal medicine. So I started thinking like an internist about the whole patient from the beginning. Then I I started orthopedic surgery, went into spine surgery, and I took sort of a surgeon's approach into internal medicine and vice versa. And around 1990, I developed chronic pain that was extreme. And I was in that hall for almost 13 years. And I was one of those surgeons who's been on both sides of the fence. I was a very aggressive surgeon. I trained at a top fellowship in Minneapolis. And I came out on fire just doing surgery after surgery after surgery. And I felt obligated to do it because people were desperate. There's no other answer. I viewed myself as the end of the line. In 1993, a paper came out in the state of Washington Showing that the success rate of a spine fusion for back pain and workers comp in workers the state of Washington was 22 percent. And my results were better than that, but they weren't that much better, so I just stopped. That was the first data that came out that always really showed that this operation didn't work. And then since then, there's not been one research paper in 60 years that documents that a spine f- fusion for back pain actually works. And I quit doing back fusions for back pain. I still do quite a bit of surgery for deformity and repeat back surgeries and, and infections and stuff. But uh, another paper came out in 2006 that said, in a very straightforward patient, when you did a back fusion, this is out of Stanford, where back in at five year fold, the success rate was 23%. So in the meantime, I developed chronic pain, went off an abyss, so to speak, developed severe anxiety, 17 different physical symptoms. I came out of it in 2003, and started sharing the tools with my patients. And a process evolved that was self-directed called The Doc Project, Direct Your Own Care. And I wrote the book to explain the background of the patients. But using mostly a self-directed process, I've watched well over 1,500 patients go to pain-free, which I never thought was possible. So I started treating patients systematically with the, I, I call it a surgeon approach and non-operative care. We're systematically addressing all the literature just doing what the literature said to do, and people started getting better. They went to pain-free. At the same time, spine surgery the last 10 years has become incredibly aggressive, and instead of doing one- and two-level fusions for back pain that didn't work, we're doing eight, 10, 12, 14-level fusions that don't work, except that the complication rate is much higher, as you well know, with the larger fusion. I see three to five patients every week having surgeries on a relatively normal spines that they didn't need. I was watching hundreds of patients go to pain free with minimal risk and no cost. So the difference between became so dramatic to me that in December two thousand eighteen, I actually quit my practice, pretty much at the peak of my career, to pursue this process here. That was three years ago. It was December two thousand eighteen. So it's been about oh, eighteen months.
0: Oh, okay. So almost two years. Man, that's that's just incredible. I mean, you know, you're at the peak of your career and you decide to make a shift. I mean, this, this, this was a big deal for you, so much so that you decided to change it all.
1: Well, the problem is what people may not understand is that people are at surgery as a last resort, and it's a last resort if there's something to operate on. But for instance, you have degenerative disease, which has actually been documented to be a normal finding as you age. It's been well documented that it is not a source of pain. No, no research paper documents that it works. We're up to almost $20 billion a year of an operation that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And on top of that with chronic pain, one way to induce depression is to repeatedly dash hopes. So we're offering procedures we know don't work. People get their hopes up, high risk, high cost, the success rate is 22%. And you well know the data keeps saying that we do more and more money on chronic pain. We're spending more and more money. The results are getting worse. Opioids are up. Disabilities up. Medical costs are up. And then I ran across a patient my last year in practice. who was only 32 years old. He had a surgery on a stable spinal oathesis that did not need surgery, paralyzed. That was it. That was my decision. I'm just done with this. I can't do this anymore. So seeing three to five patients every week having surgeries they didn't need, I'm seeing dozens of patients every month going pain-free, and probably the cost of going pain-free cost maybe between $500 to $2,000, it's a very self-directed process, maybe $5,000 at the most, but these are the worst of the worst patients, these are the 5% of patients who cost 55% of medical dollars. So these are not casual patients that are going to pain-free, I recently had a patient who had 20 years of back pain. He had 27 surgeries in 20 years. How much money do you think that cost? Hmm. The suicide attempt, alcoholism, opioid abuse, failed marriage, failed business. The cost to him in society is going to be upwards of at least $5 million, maybe more. He ran across a magician about four years ago who started to take care of him. He ran across my book, Back in Control, about three and a half years ago. He's been pain free now for over three years he is pain free. He says, I haven't felt this good since I was 30 years old. So think of the cost to the medical system of that many surgeries, ongoing medical care. He's out of the system completely. He doesn't even see doctors anymore.
0: This is awesome. So, so tell me a little bit about how back in control is, is adding value to the healthcare ecosystem. How are you doing it, right? Because it's non-traditional. So I'd love to hear more about how you're approaching it, and, and specifically, you know, how, how you're helping people?
1: Well, I'm going to sound defensive here for a second. So what I'm doing actually is traditional. In other words, every treatment in the book is well-documented medical care, but it's not covered by insurance. So we have many documented care pathways that are effective. We know this. But they're not covered by insurance. So you take mindfulness based stress reduction being has been documented to work, it actually decreases the size of the amygdala, which is the fear center in the brain. The neuroscience research lasts last 10 years has been given us very clear answer to the neurochemical nature of chronic pain, and it turns out that anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, heart disease, peripheral vascular disease, chronic pain are all inflammatory disor- disorders. Inflammatory. They're not psychological. So that data has been around for a long time. So what's happened mainstream medicine is totally off track. There's hardly anything that that they do right now that actually has been proven by data. Again, no research papers show that doing a back fusion for back pain works. We're up to $20 billion a year. That's not mainstream medicine. So this is flat out, let's take one of my exercises, which is called expressive writing. And it breaks up these anxiety-producing mental thought circuits. It's been documented in over 1,000 research papers to be effective, over 1,000. So it improves athletic performance, mood, anxiety, actually cuts wound healing in half, lowers infection rate, drops the viral load. And I asked the original author, Dr. Pennybaker, why does this work? And he goes, I don't know. The top psychologists in the world, when it comes to these obsessive, anxiety-producing thought patterns, the only solution they've found that works, and it does work, is this what's called expressive writing. Over a thousand research papers. Hmm. Now. How much money can you make by writing things down and tearing them up? Not much.
0: So, so what exactly does expressive writing entail?
1: So I was in chronic pain for 15 years, and I ran across a book where this guy said to start writing things down, which I did. And it was a great book called Feeling Good by David Burns. It's based on book-based cognitive behavioral therapy. And I thought it was the book. Turns out it was the expressive writing. You should be write down your thoughts, and you tear them up. Positive, negative, it doesn't matter. And what happens, the essence of chronic pain is your, it's your body's response to a threat which fires up your, your immune system and the inflammation. The solution revolves around safety. So thoughts, repressed thoughts, repressed emotions are all a threat, but you can't escape your thoughts. What I think the expressive done does is simply separates you from your thoughts. Your thoughts are on the table. You're here. There's now a space connected with vision and feel, which is part of your unconscious brain. The unconscious brain processes about 20 million bits of information per second. The conscious brain processes 40. So this is not a psychological issue. Anxiety is a pain. Remember, anxiety is a response to a threat. It's not the cause. So what happens in medicine right now is that we're actually creating anxiety with promising things that don't work we are predatory, is that we know these don't work. Instead of calming people down, we're firing them up. And the number one thing I think is causing disability right now is that we're so production-based on procedures that don't work that the one factor that I think determines success versus failure is talking to the patient. So what's happening, if you're willing to solve the healthcare issue, you would triple or quadruple the time spent talking to the patient. Whether it's primary care, internist, or surgeon, That's the essence of everything. Nothing else really works if you can't talk to the patient. So if you can't feel safe with your doctor, where are you going to feel safe? So that one factor of not paying, in fact, it's the other way around right now, is that hospital administrative salaries have gone up something like 3,000%. Doctor salaries have gone up 15%. And there's a lot of money going into administration and middle management. And what they're doing, they're pushing the doctors to be more and more productive the money's going into their pockets. They're taking away our capacity to talk to the patient. So two things happen. First of all, the patient doesn't feel safe. And guess what? They actually aren't safe. But the second thing is, if you're a patient, you want to know me. I want to know you. So how can you make these massive circular decisions on the first visit? It makes no sense at all. Mm-hmm. So again, the solution for chronic pain slash chronic disease is safety. It has to start with time with your position and rewarding it, not punishing it.
0: And it's, and it's difficult to do, right? When insurance pays for, for operating, not necessarily expressive writing or, or spending extra time with your patients. So tell us a little bit about how you're approaching this and, and you know, how, how you're making this all
1: work. Well, I've sort of given up on the medical profession for the moment. Now, there's many, the reason why I think this is solvable is I do think it has to come from the public, the patients. Mm-hmm. Also, has to come, remember, the administrators and doctors are also patients themselves. Remember, it's your families and friends who are also undergoing medical care. So right now, instead of creating a sense of safety and helping people, we're actually creating disability, and we're actually creating disease, not solving it. So my thing is public relations, going out to the public with podcasts like this, but on national TV, national radio, I have an app coming out starting in about two months, which basically takes people through this journey with a little bit more of a directed manner. And It is designed to create an experience of safety and pleasure. It's a very entertaining, creative app. It's called the Doc Journey, Direct Your Own Care Journey. And it's based on these workshops we did back in New York at the Omega Institute, where we had 15 to 25 people in a room, very structured, very safe. And my wife is a tap dancer. My daughter is a somatic Arts therapist, and we shared enjoyable experiences together. So, between social connection, structure, laughing, about 80% of people went pain free in three to five days, every time, every workshop. So, again, it's a creating a sense of safety that changes the body's chemistry, lowers inflammation, and promotes health. So, I do think the medical profession, if we're serious about the health of our country, health of our nation, has got to flip this paradigm. And this pandemic may be the reason to do this because what's happening, I read a Wall Street Journal article a few weeks ago that said hospitals are losing money because they're not able to make money in profitable procedures. Well, they're making money in profitable procedures that have been documented to be ineffective, right? That makes no sense. Right. Right. So why should you as a patient be the source of this hospital's income, the administrator's income, and the physician's income? And the reason why I think this can and should work is that doctors like talking to the patients so people accuse physicians of being money hungry etc cetera, etc cetera, and everybody should make money i'm not against making money i like making money but it shouldn't be at the expense of other people's health mm-hmm. and right now you have this process of yeah you have i mean the whole process everybody's in the game we have insurances we have the hospitals we have everybody making money off of people's illness right now with the pandemic we first of all are under stress remember anxiety is a result of a threat the threat is uncertainty plus inadequate medical care. So we've created disease. And remember, almost every person that dies of the COVID virus has pre-existing conditions. Right. Well, guess where do, where do those come from? So you got adult onset diabetes, eating issues, cardiac disease, lung disease. These are risk factors that are created by lack of safety. So right now, this is a come to Jesus moment where hospitals are not gonna be able to make money off of procedures for a while hopefully never, and (laughs) why not flip it now? Right now, we need to create health. We get rewarded tremendously for creating products that are profitable, particularly if they're disposable, as you well know, and what happens, we're just cranking up revenue really off of hurting people right now. And actually, a lot of people know that. We're actually asked by a hospital administrator to perform a procedure that I won't mention that has been documented documented to be ineffective. And the only reason they wanted us to do the procedure was because it was, quote, profitable, had a high profit margin.
0: Well, you know what? It's definitely not right. And as you think about the issue at hand, you know, we're faced with this problem as individuals, with our families as well, and as employers, with our employees, right? All the all the lives that we cover through through health benefits. And even as a society, it's something that that affects all of us. And so talk to us a little bit about, you know, how back in control your firm is approaching it to make it better, despite the quote unquote normal things that happen that aren't right.
1: Well, first of all, it's a public education process. It's about ninety percent self-directed. You don't need pain clinics, you don't need psychologists. What you do need that the solution to chronic pain, by the way, is a primary care program. Mm -hmm. Because chronic pain consists of sleep, stress, medications, physical conditioning. All these things are really primary care. They're not quo psychological. Most of the patients that have gotten better are not psychologists, have never have never seen psychologists. So the bottom line is is that I am working with people to educate primary care physicians to have access to the book and the website and the programming. Cool. So what it does, it puts the responsibility for care under the patient's lap, not primary care. So it allows primary care to be more efficient, it's more enjoyable, and it's more effective. So from a cost standpoint, it costs minimal amount to educate the patients. They take control of their own care. They direct their own resources. And it's a it's a big deal. I'm also setting up group systems. There's a group back in North Carolina called Integrated Pain Solutions. that has used the DOC project as a basis for group therapy. They do shared medical appointments of 10 to 12 people in a group. They meet once a month. They've cut the average morphine equivalence in this group from 100 milk equivalents of morphine a day down to 40. And what happened is that the people that are socially isolated develop chronic pain. So the social connection has been a big deal. And at the end of the year, the patients refused to break up. They had to create a second year of curriculum. So we think the group studying and medical appointments is a big deal, maybe the best way to actually treat chronic pain, also cost-effective at lots of different levels. Mm-hmm. And so doing that, I'm developing the app. I'm also developing an app for physician burnout because obviously if you're a burnout physician, it's hard to be effective and vice versa. Ironically, probably the one thing that can prevent reverse physician burnout is talking to the patient
0: goes back to that.
1: Right, because what happens is that medicine is actually pretty tedious. I and mean, we offer physical therapy, medications, injections, surgery, etc. But there's only about 10 things that we do over and over and over again. Yeah. What makes medicine incredibly interesting is the patient. Mhm.
0: Yeah, that's uh, such a such an interesting uh, approach and call out and it's like you you listen to your message Dr. Hanscom and you're like Oh, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so and so as you've been developing your approach and and you have a lot to come with with these different apps and your approach to to chronic pain as a as a primary care area of expertise. I, I really like that that idea. Uh what would you say is is one of the setbacks you've experienced as as you've been developing these resources and your approach over the last 18 months and and what was the key learning from that setback?
1: Well, first of all, I have to continue to embrace my own tools. In other words, I practice where I preach to my patients. I continue continue to stay centered. I get pretty viciously attacked. When I left my hospital, I was actually, one of my friends was told by different administrators how happy they were to see Hanscom retire. Because I was the lowest quilt producer, my surgical rate dropped to 4.5% of new patients by the time I left. Even surgical patients were going to pain-free. They hated it. So it's been tough. And what happened is I really had to work on my own tools, get started, and realized that when I was upset, they were attacking this image of David Hanscom, not necessarily me personally, what I stood for. And so I learned, how to, learned not to take it personally. I learned to, I won't use the word be resilient and tough, but I learned to stay connected to my own message and just move forward steadily, and it's made a big difference. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, that's so well put, and it takes a lot of courage. And, you know, you, you went through it yourself. And so maybe that's where your courage came from to do this. But where, maybe you could tell us better. I mean, where is your courage coming from to do this? Because it's not easy.
1: Well, I mean, I have lots of different passions. One of them is, you know, the whole physician burnout thing. And I went through a burnout. Mm-hmm. And what actually kills physicians is anxiety. It turns out anxiety is not psychological. It's the response to a threat. It is physiological. It is not being treated correctly. So I was suicidal. I have 19 medical colleagues there from suicide. I look at every day somewhat as bonus time. And in the doctor's defense, I would have no insight into this at all if I hadn't gone through what I went through, because we're just taught the wrong thing. So first of all, I shouldn't be here. Honestly, I actually started proceeding with my own demise. And again, having 19 medical colleagues and counting, by the way, disappear has been very sobering and so i consider everyday a bonus day. i consider it a privilege to carry this message forward two of my biggest mentors have taught me that adversity is your opportunity to actually move forward in other words embrace opportunity in fact one of my friends said never waste a crisis and so i don't like the adversity i don't welcome it but i've also learned that each time i comes at me i just go back to my own basic tools i teach my patients get regrounded in what I'm doing and just keep moving forward. Hmm. So I've also learned the key word persistence. Just one day at a time, one podcast, one patient. I do a round table every Tuesdays and Thursdays at noon for an hour. There's about 20 to 30 people in the round table. And in three months, we've already had five people in the group go to pain-free. So it's also inspiring with my patient successes that it actually keeps me going also. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. That's a great story, David. And congratulations. I mean, amazing that you got yourself out of that rut and now are working to and are inspired to, to help others with their pain. And, and, you know, there's a lot of physicians hurting out there as well. And, you know, hopefully if you're listening to this message, you're finding some inspiration in, uh, in Dr. Hanscom's message and story. So, so, you you know, I think it's awesome what you're doing, David. And so what would you say excites you most today?
1: You know, it really comes down to one patient at a time, one person at a time. I think on this round table, there must be eight physicians on it, Mm -hmm. and four of them have already turned it around. So just watching people one person at a time get energized and move forward like that just feels good. I just enjoy it. As one of my friends told me, I just simply get energized by my patients, and I do miss my practice. I mean, I will say I like being in the trenches. I'm, quote, retired, but not really. But yeah, I I really do miss being in the trenches and doing what I did. I had a wonderful, incredible team. We watched patient after patient get better. But I just felt like I needed to leverage what I knew more to the real world. So yeah, I definitely miss that part of my practice too.
0: Yeah. You did it for so long, and now you're making the shift. But I I, I see your new practice growing. And and it feels more at the heart of what you're after. So, you know, that, that's pretty exciting in itself, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah. And what I try not to get discouraged about, again, that's why I go to one patient at a time, because, I'm, you know, there's a big system out there to change. And I do think it will come from the ground up. And I do think that the public is understanding that a lot of things are being done to them that are not helpful. They're starting to seek alternatives. So the last two years, i say there's a big shift in the public awareness of what might work. There's also many physicians, of course, that feel the same way I do. And my whole thing is collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. And we're generally we're slowly bringing together a group of people who think the same way, creating a certain momentum. Yeah, and it's starting to happen.
0: Congratulations! Uh, it's 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 awesome. And so, folks, that you know, today we wanted to spend a little bit of time diving into the into the problem of you know care and overoperation and the issues of burnout. And it's been a fantastic. Episode. We're going to have a part two to this where we dive into Dr. Hanscom's view on on the solutions. And so we've got another exciting podcast coming to you in this small series. But before we conclude, David, I'd love if you could just leave us with the closing thought before we join again next time. And then the best place where the listeners could get in touch with you to continue the conversation and learn more.
1: My main message is use the tools yourself. The way you actually help your patients is helping yourself. The tools are not very hard to do, but by connecting to yourself, you'll be able to connect to your patients and vice versa. So it's all about connected and engaged thinking and about fixing is just being with what is on a given moment that you're in. That's a great takeaway. And where can the listeners get in touch, David? The website is backincontrol.com one word. The new app will be available on that site. The website right now, by the way, is open source. People can always have access to that. The book is on Amazon. Back in control: a surgeon's role of chronic pain. The other book, Do you really need surgery? I think is really going to be helpful. It really clarifies very quickly in a quadrant who does and doesn't need surgery. So I am not against surgery. I'm just against surgery that doesn't make any sense. So it's it a quick read. It has a lot of clarity to the decision-making. And I'm very excited about that book also called, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery?
0: Love it. And folks, as Dr. Hanscom mentioned, BackInControl.com is is the website. You'll find the books there. You'll find resources there. You'll find a link where you could join the Tuesday and Thursday Q&A roundtables. Uh, Just just a a wealth of of resources and, and free guides that he offers there just really brilliant, brilliant stuff. So make sure to check that out. David, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful discussion and I'm excited for our next one.
1: Thank you.